We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome in, everybody, to another installment of Fielding the 68. I'm Facts and Childress here with Lucas Harkins and Andy Bottoms. And, fellas, we officially made it to the best time of the year. It's March 1st, 2024. Welcome to March. Yeah, right back I'm being told it is March. (laughs) It is indeed March, and a lot has gone on in the last week of college basketball. So let's start things off with a reaction to the past week. Which of the teams that are currently, maybe it's a team on the bubble watch, maybe it's a team pushing to get on the one line, who helped themselves most since the last time we spoke here on Fielding the 68? Shoot for it, Andy. What you got? All right. I was was being nice to try to let you go. Uh, I mean, teams that helped themselves most is big for road. That's true. That's true. Uh, A lot of big road wins for teams. Uh, this week, you saw BYU win at Kansas. That really helped solidify their profile. One that didn't have uh, a lot of high quality road wins on it. Texas wins big at Texas Tech, uh, and then on the bubble, uh, you've got St. John's. They go into Butler to win. Uh, Northwestern, not really a bubble team, uh, but went into Maryland and was able to get a win. And then Gonzaga uh, last night. Technically, the committee uh, is counting that as a road game, even though it was at the Chase Center. So that was really the order of the day. Almost every team that I wrote down that was a a benefactor this week was one that won on the road uh, and the committee uh, year after year talks about winning road games, and the importance of that. And you just had a bunch of teams really step up in, uh, in big spots to, to win road games to either solidify their resume or in the case of, uh, you know, a team like St. John's get themselves a little bit closer to the, uh, to the cut line. Yeah. And I'll add two on top and of that same Kentucky and Nevada. And as far as helping themselves, obviously, Kentucky, Nevada, and a bunch of great comments by Andy. Are there any teams that have fallen in the status of the committee in this past week? Who are a couple teams that hurt themselves? Lucas, we'll start with you. Well, some of us on the opposite side of the teams that helped themselves. Uh, Butler obviously hurt itself with a a home loss um, to St. John's. Texas A&M suffered another loss to drop back. Um, Wake Forest had had a kind of a letdown loss that, that, that really hurts them, and another road loss. Um, as they've really struggled to play away from home. I think those three on the bubble are the ones that really hurt themselves most and put themselves, particularly Butler and Texas Santa, in situations where they're really long shots right now and Wake Forest uh, still has some work to do. Yeah, I'd throw a couple other Big Ten teams in the mix uh, for that as well. Uh, Nebraska losing another road game at Ohio State, a resurgent Ohio State team, but – uh, Nebraska, one of the big knocks on them has been their ability to win away from home. They did win at IU uh, the week prior, but uh, but dropped that game at Ohio State, which, again, doesn't push them into 
Dayton territory at this point, but that's a pretty clear blemish on their resume. And then uh, I would, you know, Wisconsin losing at IU, they've really struggled. Uh, and I also get very few opportunities to talk about uh, solid IU performances on here. So I'm going to take my, take my chance here while I can, but um, you know, that, that really Wisconsin since the reveal is a team that has, has really struggled and, their seed is dropping a bit. You step back and look at their profile in totality. It still looks decent in terms of the number of quality wins, but they're also one that uh, you got to try to shake off that recency look at things, but they're one and two since the reveal. And they were 16th at that point, uh, lost at Iowa and, and at IU only beat Maryland in that stretch. So they're a team that's sliding a little bit. And that was what felt like for them, I'm sure, a winnable road game coming into the week. Yeah, and to a little bit on the Wisconsin point, it's going to be a challenging schedule coming up for the Badgers. Uh, realistically speaking, at this juncture, and this could be for either of you, Andy or Lucas, kind of a floor-ceiling game that we could play with Wisconsin. How far could they potentially slide if they continue to drop uh, some more games? Yeah, well, I have Wisconsin down, down in my top six today. I think Andy made a good point. And they have 12 wins across the upper two quadrants. They're six and six in quad one, six and four in quad two. That gives you a pretty high floor um, to begin with. I think it's going to be difficult to see them drop um, even to an eight, nine. I think that would be really surprising to me. I think the six, seven is probably where they're going to end up. Uh, but obviously with the quality they have and the opportunities that still remain, there, there's a chance that there's a bounce back in there. So moving forward with things, we're going to reveal our consensus number one seeds from this past week. I don't think there's going to be a ton of movement within the number one seeds. We're kind of on the same thought philosophy across the board. Purdue, obviously, the number one overall seed. UConn coming in as the number two overall seed. Houston, number three overall seed. And Arizona as the number four overall seed. Uh, Andy, we can start with you. Thoughts on the latest fielding the 68 number one seed reveal? Yeah, not a surprise. We were talking before the show. It's probably the longest since we've done this over the last few seasons, and it hasn't changed in in quite a while. Uh, where I do think there's a couple interesting decision points is first looking at Houston and UConn. Uh, Houston four and zero since the reveal. They they won home games against Texas, Iowa State, and Cincinnati, and then one on the road at Baylor. So I think they've closed the gap a bit uh, between uh, them and UConn, but still have them third at least on my list. And then you look at the the last one. You know, Arizona lost that Washington State game since the reveal uh, won against Arizona State, which is uh, great. But they just don't have games left that are really going to move the needle facing Oregon and then at U UCLA and at USC. So what could happen there is they could get caught by the two teams behind them uh, who were who were fifth and sixth in the reveal and neither of which have lost in North Carolina and Tennessee. And, and Tennessee in particular has... Uh, a schedule full of opportunities going to Alabama and to South Carolina before finishing at home against Kentucky and even North Carolina. They've got a couple winnable home games coming up next, but still have that trip to Cameron. So if those teams can continue winning, feels like they've already closed the gap to Arizona could potentially leapfrog them there. So while we haven't seen movement yet and we haven't seen movement lately, I do think there's a chance that we see a little bit of shuffling there dependent upon uh, how the teams behind those currently on the one line fare. Lucas, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's straightforward. I, I mean, I think Purdue, UConn, and Houston are in really, really good shape um, to land a one seed. Arizona has a few less opportunities 
and then the teams behind them do. But as it stands, they have um, their foot in the door ahead of that group um, as the last one seed today. So talking about the teams that are on the two line, obviously Andy was talking about UNC, Tennessee, and, you know, kind of the chance that both of them possess going forward, trying to play their way onto the one line. What are some realistic scenarios? And Lucas, we can go back to you for this. Uh, How can Tennessee potentially get onto the one line at this juncture? Well, for one, they have a lot of things on their side. Like if you're going to take a metric analysis at the top side, at the top of the top of the seed list, Tennessee's there. Uh, top five in every single t- team sheet metric. They have one loss outside of Quadrant 1. They only have two losses outside of Quadrant 1A. Uh, they've played a top 20 non-conference strength of schedule and a top 20 strength of schedule, six and three in true road games. Like There's a lot of things that are on Tennessee's side. Um, if they're able to pick up some of these key wins down the stretch, that puts them there. Uh, Andy already talked about North Carolina a bit, um, a seven and two true road record. They were already um, right in the mix there on bracket pre- at the bracket preview. Another one that we haven't discussed yet, um, just because of the remaining schedule, Marquette still gets UConn and Creighton um, down the stretch. If they're able to win both of those, uh, it can get interesting. But I really think right now um, we have three one seeds that are pretty locked in and three teams competing for the last one with Arizona, Tennessee, and North Carolina. Yeah, I I would agree on Marquette. I think they've got some opportunities, as you said, Lucas, but – maybe a taller order to actually accomplish that you know, with the, you know, at Creighton facing UConn again at Xavier. So certainly if they win those games, it's uh, it, it's, it's a possibility, but a little bit tougher road there. You know, I think Tennessee again has the most, ha- has the best opportunities because if you look at them against uh, most, really most of these teams that are up there, they only have five quad one wins at this point, although four of those fall in, uh, you know, quad one, a Carolina's got seven, Arizona's got eight. Um, but, all three of the remaining games that Tennessee has would fall there. So that helps, you know, really is the only area that they, that they don't look as strong. You know, Lucas talked a lot about them both in the, the quality and the resume metrics, road record, the strength, the schedule, all those things, they look uh, pretty good. So just have a chance to bolster that. Although uh, obviously a really tough road with, with who they've got. And then Carolina is really just the one that, you know, I think a lot of people, including myself, were surprised at where they were when they came out in the, in the preview uh, that they were fifth overall. And so they haven't lost since then. The biggest win they had since then was at Virginia. Uh, and they just, you know, really for them, they have to keep winning because NC State and Notre Dame at home aren't really going to move the needle. That game at Cameron is the one that potentially can do that and then set themselves up heading into the ACC tournament. Uh, but again, they've got, you know, 10, 10 road neutral wins. Uh, metrics are, are solid, although a little bit behind what Tennessee has. And so, you know, I think, I think it should be a pretty compelling race uh, coming down the stretch. Each team kind of has some different opportunities, some more just to not stub their toe and, uh, and others with chances to really uh, you know, jump a, a team or two on the list. Uh, wrapping things up, talking about the one-line reveal and consensus. Uh, some chatter on social media in the last couple weeks, and specifically this past week, about Houston passing UConn on the one-line. Lucas, I'll come to you first for this. What would Houston have to do at this juncture to potentially leapfrog UConn for the number two overall seed? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, it comes down to whether or not they're already there or not in the eyes of the committee. Like, I think there's a reasonable argument for that. Um, Houston's one or two in every single metric, tops in the net, tops in BPI and Ken Palm. Uh, they have both have 14 and three records against the top two quadrants. Uh, Houston's eight and three in quad one. UConn's nine and three. Pretty pretty interchangeable there overall. Uh, I, I think it comes down to what 
um, the committee thinks of, of just how highly Houston is, is regarded. And really it is like, it depends how much you want to look at. Yes, they're number one in Ken Palm, but they're also number one in Ken Palm by a lot. Like the difference between Houston and Purdue on Ken Palm right now is about the same distance as between Purdue at two and Auburn at six. Like if that's something that they're going to take into account, I think you could see Houston being um, as that number two team right now. Um, I am currently still leaning with UConn um, at that, at this point. Andy, your yeah, thoughts? I'm going to assume. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a similar boat. I've still got UConn there now, but I definitely think that gap has, has closed. I think it depends a little bit, and this is what you don't really get from the, the committee reveal is how close they were to begin with. Um, because if they were pretty close to begin with, you could argue that Houston would have passed them, um, you know, with, with the road win at Baylor and, um, you know, home wins over Texas and Iowa State. You know, they've had three really impressive wins since, since the reveal. But if there was a gap there um, – then I think you could make a, a more compelling argument that they would be able to to jump that. If you look at opportunities in terms of what teams have left, UConn's got a couple other road games that would uh, potentially move the needle going to Marquette and at Providence, which has big bubble implications uh, for the Friars. And then with Houston, they go to uh, Oklahoma over the weekend and to UCF. So both of those quad one games, I think UCF the, would still be a quad one game at this point. Um, but you know, again, maybe not as high of a team as, as a Marquette would be, but then they've got Kansas as their home game. So a chance to to be able to beat them and, uh, you know, avenge that loss that they had at, at KU. So I think those teams are pretty close right now. Uh, if they if they both win out for the regular season, uh, I think you'd probably still see UConn slightly ahead of them, at least in my view. Uh, but anything other than that, I think Houston has a chance to pass them. And then you look at, we'll have to see how the tournament brackets shake out for the, the conference tournaments. Uh, and then get into the how much does uh, do the wins that these teams get in the conference tournaments really matter in the eyes of the committee? But that's a bigger discussion that we could probably have another time. But at least you could see the path that they'd have and what games they could win uh, if they made a deep run in those conference tournaments. A lot of storylines on the one line for sure. You're watching the field of Fielding the 68 brought to you by Rhythm. On the other side, we're going to have some bubble talk in segment number two. Everybody's favorite March activity, analyzing the bubble. Stick with us on Fielding the 68. As you guys know by now, we've partnered with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for the listeners and the viewers of the Field of 68 as we all get ready for the best month of the year, March madness if you haven't signed up for betmgm yet you can use the bonus code field 150 and you will get 150 dollars in free bets on your first wager with betmgm regardless of whether or not you win that first bet here's the best part all you need to do is deposit and bet five dollars of your hard-earned money this is how you make it work download the betmgm app and sign up using the bonus code field 150 that's field 150 Deposit at least $5 and place your first wager on any game. You will receive up to $150 in bonus bets regardless of the outcome of your bet. Just make sure you use that bonus code FIELD150 when you sign up. And remember, BetMGM is now available in one wallet in select states. As a New Jersey resident, this is super convenient when I have to go cover games in Philly or New York, which happens quite a bit. When you cross state borders, you just log into your existing account and fire away. You don't have to create a new account in each state. It's easy, it's simple, and it's clean. And most importantly, we have some fun stuff coming up for the conference tournaments and for the NCAA tournament. Bet insurance tokens college hoops odds boost and my personal favorite a nice little parlay boost here and there so download the bet mgm app 
and sign up today. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back in to Fielding the 68, brought to you by Rhythm Facts and Childress, Lucas Harkins, and Andy Bottoms on March 1st, 2024, everybody's favorite time of the year in the college basketball world. Just got wrapping up, talking about what happened in this last week, talking about the one seeds, moving it more towards the bubble now. Lucas, going to come to you first with some last four in talk. Talk to me about where your head's at currently on this last four in on the bubble. Yeah, so my last four in right now um, is a one-conference situation, a lot of it. Um, my last four in are New Mexico, um, then Villanova, Seton Hall, and Providence. Um, something that can change as early as tomorrow um, as Villanova plays Providence. I mean, that's a game that can kind of shift things around already. Um, but an interesting group of teams. Uh, New Mexico has a really weird resume. Um, 29th in KPI, 61st in strength of record. Uh, they've lost in each of quad three and four, barely a top 100 strength of schedule, 273 in non-conference strength of schedule. They still have to go at Boise, at Utah State down the stretch. They can really determine their own fate in those games. Um, Villanova got some of the best wins in the bubble at Creighton, at North Carolina. Uh, I mean, North Carolina neutral. They got Texas Tech and Memphis on neutrals. Uh, they're the team that I think can really determine the Big East bubble um, as they still play Seton Hall and Providence down the stretch here. Uh, they have great quality metrics, but three quad three losses, poor resume metrics are keeping them right here um, on the bubble. They close at Providence, at Seton Hall, and then Creighton at home. Uh, obviously, opportunities there to rise and opportunities that that if they don't get can quickly drop them down because because their their win percentage is, is what drags them down right now. Um, Seton Hall, five of their last seven wins, uh, but none of those wins are over teams projected in the field. They haven't really had many chances lately to add spots over the field, but haven't won um, a game over a team in the field since January 6th. Um, that said, they got wins over Marquette. They got wins at, at UConn. I mean, both of them, wins over Marquette and UConn at home. Uh, I, think they're, I still think they're going to have to take uh, one of these last two, one of these next two before they get to the Big East tournament. They go at UConn and then at home um, against Villanova. Uh, then I put Providence just on the inside uh, right now. I think that they're going to kind of need to take this one against Villanova because um, then they go at Georgetown, which doesn't do very much to help you. And then UConn at home, which, I mean, we've, we've seen how difficult it is to beat UConn at home. Um, or road this year. Uh, they've got some really good wins and enough to be on the right side for me, um, but haven't been great away from home. Almost a sub-250 non-conference strength of schedule keeps them right here on the cut line. Andy, throwing it to you now for your last four in. Yeah, some overlap. I've still got Gonzaga in there right now. Uh, they're a team that's pretty tough to peg. Uh, on, the, on the one hand, you watch them play, you see some of the quality metrics, and it feels like they should be 
uh, pretty safe. The, the challenge and the dilemma is they're one and four against the field. Uh, they just have four wins in the top two quadrants. And so how safe are they really uh, if they lose to St. Mary's uh, over the weekend with just that Kentucky win to really fall back on a sweep of San Francisco or really their, their top three wins plus a neutral court win over Syracuse. So I, I, maybe I'm selling them short, but I, I just think the lack of quality wins is a, is a question mark there. Uh, Seton Hall, uh, Lucas talked about, I think with their remaining schedule, they've got at UConn, Villanova, and DePaul at home. I think if you find a way to go two and one in that, uh, likely one of the home games, give you just a little bit of breathing room heading into the Big East tournament. Don't think anybody is expecting them to go into UConn uh, and win, but certainly that would be a, a huge one for them and would give them a lot of breathing room uh, as you look there. You've got Wake Forest. Uh, touched on them as a, a team that um, you know lost some ground this week with losing that game at Notre Dame. You know, big question for them. They're two and eight in true road games, just three and ten in road neutral environments. Uh, the best road win they have is against Boston College, and so that game for them tomorrow against Virginia Tech at Virginia Tech becomes pretty big. It's another chance to prove they can win away from home. The quality metrics are really strong, uh, much stronger than the resume metrics. They just have the one quad one win, uh, which they picked up last weekend against Duke. They're five and five against quad two. Uh, I think. For me, it was metrics largely that that helped them get there, uh, but their grip on the spot is is pretty tenuous at this point. And then Providence, I had as my last team in as well. Lucas touched on them. Uh, they've got Villanova at Georgetown, UConn left again. Feels like going two and one there. Don't drop the game at Georgetown. Win one of the two home games, and and you can feel okay heading into the Big East tournament. Uh, they've got four wins versus the field, which is good. But you've got the fact that some of those came uh, with Bryce Hopkins still in the mix. So that becomes challenging uh, for them to try to figure out what to do. And right now they're just eight and 10 in non quad four games. So that, that is a, a, not necessarily a great mark to, to look at as you head down the stretch. So uh, that game against Villanova is pretty huge for them uh, in the bubble for both teams tomorrow. And, and just to talk New Mexico real quickly, they were the team that I had just clear uh, of the, of the last four in. So really in that same general vicinity for me as to where they are around the bubble and as Lucas said, the big knock on them has been, who have you beaten away from home? They didn't really pick up huge non-conference wins. Nothing they can do about that now. Uh, but outside of a win at Nevada, they've struggled away from home. So having games left at Boise and at Utah State gives them a chance to rectify that uh, as we head uh, into conference tournament play. Uh, Lucas, throwing things back to you, just because you had three of your four teams in the last four in from the Big East. I mean, it's shaping up to be the Big East Tournament 2.0 in Dayton as things currently stand. Can you explain a little bit of how that's allowed to have three teams from the same conference in the uh, last four in? We've had a couple questions from you know the subscribers, obviously, in the YouTube comment section asking about uh, the rules and the framework behind that. Yeah, any of the rules for bracketing are, are, are able to be flexible when it comes to the last four in and therefore the first four. Um, th that that final grouping that's going to play in Dayton is, is a group that does not matter. Your conference affiliation, you, they want to put the teams that they had last in the field in Dayton, um, and they'll be, they'll be able to be flexible with that, and it won't break any bracket rules to do so. Um, so you could possibly see um, a, a Big East, Big East matchup um, in the first four, if three teams end up there. But I do think that while that's where it stands now, the fact that Villanova still has to play Providence um, and Seton Hall, I think it's more likely only two of those teams end up in Dayton, if, if, if that. As we now throw things to our consensus last week, we've gotten a look at Lucas's, gotten a look at Andy's. 58's consensus has 
Seton Hall, New Mexico, Providence, and Villanova. So three Big East teams in the consensus last four in. Uh, either of you guys can jump in on this one. I think everybody's probably in the same general vicinity with the five or six teams that are being thrown around in this area. But any more comments before we move on from the last four in from either of you guys about this? Only thing that I would throw out uh, as it pertains to your last question about kind of how that would work if they went to Dayton. Um, and this probably makes it seem even less likely that this it will work out this way. But if two of them happen to face each other in the Big East tournament, those would probably be two that they would try not to pair up again. Uh, there are lots of rules around when teams can play each other from the same conference. As Lucas mentioned, those kind of go out the window when they're all in the first four. But I think they would try to prevent if if two of those teams had already played each other three times as opposed to two, they would try to stay away from that matchup for a fourth time. Uh, but otherwise, uh, yeah, what he said is correct. There's really nothing against it. Uh, and you, you throw most of the bracketing rules out the window when you you get those as the first four because they're not going to artificially bump somebody out of Dayton in order to prevent some of those kinds of things in the bracket. Andy, will you this time, let's take a look at your first four out. Yeah, so uh, again, some familiar names here as we talk about it. Villanova was the first one out for me. I think they, as you look at these Big East teams, they're the one that, They've all three of their remaining games are opportunities uh, for them. They they finish at Providence, at Seton Hall, and Creighton. So two of those on the road, but two of them also against teams that you're directly competing with for some of those last spots. And then Creighton, uh, one of the better teams in the league that you can pick up a win against. So for them, that becomes really important. Lucas touched on their their quality wins, so uh, won't belabor that. Then you got Utah. Uh, for them, another team that's really struggled to win away from home, two and seven in true road games. Uh, but they did have a few really nice wins in the non-conference that have, have aged well, beating BYU, winning at St. Mary's, beating Wake on a neutral floor. So those have been helpful uh, for them. Their, other, their only win against the field, or, or their, four, their other win against the field, rather, is against Washington State at home. For them, they've got Cal and then at the Oregon schools remaining. So chances to affect that road record in the game against Oregon would be a solid win on the road, but otherwise just two opportunities to, to trip up, if anything. St. John's uh, has played their way back into, into things here. They have two wins against the field, which is a little weird, uh, but only one of those has come uh, against a team outside of the last four in. But they've also beaten Utah. They swept Villanova. So those things matter uh, to a certain extent as you, as you look at some of the teams that are around them. On the flip side, they don't really have any way to move the needle going forward. They just have opportunities to trip up. They've only got two games left at DePaul and then Georgetown at home really can't afford to lose either of those. And that does pad their win total, which is a good thing. Uh, would give them another road win. But, uh, you know, some of the things that, that you know, you may, holes you may want to fill in their profile, those don't do anything to fill either of those. And then you've got Colorado, who, you know, to me is a bit more of a, a metric scenario than anything. They only have one win against the field, plus they beat Utah at home. That win against the field came against Washington State on their home floor. But otherwise, the metrics are all you know top fifty. Uh, quality metrics average out to forty four. Resume metrics to forty six and a half. Don't have a loss outside of Q two, but just don't have anything super compelling uh, on their profile when you look at it that way. Two and seven inch rear games as well. So uh, definitely some themes as you look at a bunch of these teams. A lot of the same uh, ills have affected each of them. Lucas, throwing things to you now for your first four out. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure Andy and I have actually been this in agreement, like, ever. Um, <laughs> like, outside of the outside of the Villanova-Wake Forest thing, we're extremely close. Um, so his first team out was Villanova. Mine is Wake Forest. Um, and then we go same order, second, third, fourth out. Utah, St. John's, Colorado. I, 
I'm actually kind of blown away by that. Um, and as far as Wake Forest goes, I, I think that it's just going to be a really difficult situation for a team that's two and eight um, in true road games, the sub two fifty non-conference strength of schedule um, to get in the field without winning tomorrow at Virginia Tech. Cause if they don't, that's their last road opportunity. They'll enter selection Sunday, two and nine on the road uh, with that sub two fifty non-conference strength schedule. I think those two things are such big reasons that they can be left out of the field that I think it's, it's, I think that's going to make it very difficult um, on them. Utah's faded a bit down the stretch here, but they still have great non-con wins. St. Mary's BYU um, are aging really nicely. Uh, at, at St. John's, I think they're a team that I, I think I mentioned it earlier. Um, they're the biggest Villanova fans in the country, in my opinion. And I think if they're rooting for a bubble team um, down the stretch, they should root for every bubble team to lose except Villanova. Uh, because a, as Andy mentioned, they don't have many wins over the field. Well, you can tack on two more wins over the field um, if Villanova gets in, as St. John's swept the, swept the Wildcats this year. Um, and I think they're going to need that help because you come down the stretch, they're my third team out, and they finish with DePaul and Georgetown. Neither of those games really helped them. They're going to need some help or play really well in the Big East tournament, I think, to get over the hump. Um, and Villanova can help them there. Uh, Colorado's my fourth team out. Same reasoning as Andy. I, I think the metrics put them there. Um, but with the remaining schedule that there are and, and what the what the situation is right now, Colorado's a snapshot fourth team out for me. Um, but I think I feel a little bit better about even some of the teams behind them making the tournament than I do with Colorado right now, given where things stand. But, but for now, they're my fourth team out. So we heard from Andy, we heard from Lucas. Let's take a look at the consensus. First four out at fielding the 68. Wake Forest, oh. that first team out. Utah, St. John's, and Colorado following it up. And so Wake Forest has been a team that is a very hot topic right now with the ACC media. I know I'm new to field 68. I'm an ACC guy. Talk to me a little, bit, a little bit about Wake Forest, all right? There's a lot of Wake Forest fans. They've been rowdy as of late, as uh, Joe Lenardi pointed out. What's the skinny on Wake Forest, and how much did that Notre Dame loss hurt them? It, it just, to me, was another missed opportunity to prove they can consistently win games on the road. It, it wasn't necessarily that it was Notre Dame or really anybody else, but you, know, you just look at their their losses. They haven't lost at home, I don't believe. And, and nobody's going to begrudge them necessarily for losing at Carolina, at Duke, at Virginia, even at Pitt to a certain extent, but – you know, they, they didn't find a way to win at NC State or Florida State or Georgia in the non-conference or Notre Dame. And I think just at some point those pile up. And as Lucas said, it feels like this is the way that I approach it sometimes. I think the committee probably does as well. You're, you're almost looking for reasons to leave people out once you get close to the end as much as you are to put them in. And so when you look at that, that two and eight true road record as it stands right now, again, a chance to, to rectify that uh, in Blacksburg over the weekend, but you look at that, that's a pretty big black eye. The non-conference strength of schedule doesn't really do you any favors, and you only have three wins against the field, and they all came at home. Uh, as I say some of this, I maybe question my own judgment for leaving them in the field, but that's, you know, I think there's, there's lots of things not to like about them in that regard. Now, net is really strong at 27. Quality metrics really strong. They average out at 22.5, and I think when you watch them play, you feel good about, you know, how they are as a basketball team. You had the Efton Reed scenario early in the season. So there are reasons, I think, that you could talk yourself into them being there, but there are also reasons to talk yourself into to them being out. So as you look at them down the stretch, that game tomorrow feels like a, almost a must-win uh, for them in a lot of ways just to be able to prove you can win on the road. And then they've got Georgia Tech and Clemson at home. Clemson would give them another win against a team in the field. So they've got opportunities, albeit not you know, top-end opportunities like some of the teams that we've talked about, but 
Uh, I, I do think the opportunity is there to prove what at least it looks like as you watch them, that they're a team that's deserving of being in the field. It's just that not all the numbers and that road record in particular suggest that they may not be. Uh, Lucas, anything to add on the Demon Deacons before we head to a quick break? No, I think kind of hilariously, Andy's the one with, with Wake Forest in the field, and I'm throwing them out. Um, and we're making kind of opposite second second uh, arguments for them. Equal opportunity here, you know. <laughs> yeah, one thing for Wake Forest on their side is, I mean, they only have one quadrant, one win, um, but they also beat Florida at home. They're 34th um, in the net. If they can climb into the top 30, that gives them a second quad one win. Um, and the home game against Clemson that they still have is another quad one opportunity. Um, so there is a chance they can get up to as many as three quad one wins by the time the ACC tournament starts. Um, and that would be a big, that would be a pretty sizable difference maker. Um, but that's still going back to um, the fact that their road record is something that's going to be a black eye unless they're able to get um, a win over Virginia Tech. And even if they are, it's still something that that's going to be a negative even if it is three and eight. Going to take a quick break. We're going to talk some conference breakdowns on the other side. You're watching Fielding the 68 brought to you by Rhythm. There is nothing in sports better than the heart of the college basketball season, which is why I need to tell you guys about our partners over at Rhythm. If you're into sports betting, you need Rhythm, the place for data-backed props and picks. For those that are unfamiliar, Rhythm, spelled R-I-T-H-M-M, is the go-to mobile app for player props and game picks. Backed by AI predictive models, Rhythm helps you make smarter and faster betting decisions across all sports, but particularly college hoops, where there are as many as 150 games a day during conference play many of which have softer lines at BetMGM than you'll find in the NFL or the NBA. With Rhythm, you get data-backed picks for every Division One game every day. Users get free picks daily with the ability to upgrade to unlimited access. And for those of you already using modeling, you can build custom sports betting models within the Rhythm app itself. I am a Rhythm user, and I found that I've been a better better when I focus on lines where my gut and Rhythm's modeling are aligned. When I think UConn can cover on the road against Butler and Rhythm backs that up, we fire. But Rhythm also helps lead you to plays that you didn't know you needed to make. Like, for example, when the data says bet the over in UMass Lowell versus New Hampshire because you have a 61% edge on that line, you bet the over and you bink. So if you want to increase your edge and win more bets, go to the link in the description below and download Rhythm today. That's R-I-T-H-M-M, the place for data-backed props and picks. Welcome back into Fielding the 68, brought to you by Rhythm, Facts, and Childress. Uh, we've got Andy and Lucas, two of the top bracketology guys in the business. Andy, we're going to start with you for this as we start to shift gears more towards conference breakdowns. Talk to me a little bit about the Big 12. Houston's still at the top their first year as a part of the conference, and it's been a dominant showing for Houston per usual. Anything else catching your eye in the Big 12 at this juncture? Yeah, I think the big one, uh, I think there's a, a bunch of teams jumbled up in the middle, but a team that may have separated themselves a little bit from that jumble this week was BYU. Uh, that win at Kansas, I referenced it earlier in the show, was you know coming into that game, their best road wins were UCF, which is a quad one, low-end quad one, but still a, a quad one road win, and West Virginia. Those are the only two games they'd won away from home. And so being able to go into Allen Fieldhouse and win the game, I know McCuller wasn't there and all those things, but for them, 
that helps to validate some of the, the really high quality metrics that they have, gives them a, a third quad one A win. Uh, and now they're nine and eight against the top two quadrants with no other losses. So I, I think for them, they head into this final stretch, which the next couple are really pretty difficult. TCU at home, then they travel uh, to Hilton to face Iowa State, and then they finish with Oklahoma State at home. But if you kind of look at how they've played at home over the course of the season, you feel like for them, seem seem to be a good pick to be able to win those home games and probably drop the road game. But for them, gives them a, a pretty a pretty good floor uh, from a seating standpoint. And for me, put them up on the five line uh, based on where they were, uh, which is a jump from where they were before. So I think they're the one that, that may have separated themselves where they're not quite up in the uh, Kansas, Iowa State, Baylor uh, aspect of things, but they're not in the, the Texas TCU, Oklahoma, Texas Tech group. They, they've kind of carved out a little space in between those two uh, pockets of teams uh, for me after the win at Kansas. Uh, Lucas, going to throw it to you now. Anything in the Big 12 in this past week catch your eye? Yeah, you know, I wasn't being lazy when going through my bracket, and yet my S-curve still went with four consecutive Big 12 teams on the 8-9 lines. Um, Texas, Texas Tech, Oklahoma, TCU are all that close to each other right now with super comparable resumes across the board, not just because they played such similar schedules in conference play, but just in general, their, their quadrant records are similar, their, their metrics are pretty similar. It's going to be a really interesting battle to see where those teams end up and, and where even the first team you – like if, if things continue along this path where they're all really close um, on Selection Sunday, it, it's something like if you're a TCU fan and you see – Oklahoma pop up as a seven seed. That's probably a good thing for you because that means the committee, the committee really liked those bubble, those those kind of mid mid tier uh, bracket teams um, from the Big Twelve. Uh, but I think that one thing that's that's notable a part of this is with these many teams on the eight nine line. Uh, something that we even discussed a little bit earlier with the first four um, and having Big East teams there um, with the eight nine line and presumably Houston staying on the one seed line. It's important to note. Uh, that Big 12 teams or any team in a conference, you can play an interconference foe as early as the second round um, as long as you only played that team once during the regular season. As far as that goes with Houston, they only played Texas Tech once, Oklahoma once, and TCU once um, in the regular season. The only team of those teams that I think are around the eight nines um, that they played twice is Texas. So you could see a Houston play a team um, in the Big 12 like the Horn Frogs, Sooners, or Red Raiders as early um, as a Saturday or Sunday in the opening weekend. Final point to make about the Big 12. Wanted to ask either of you, so either you can jump in on this, about Kansas State. Wildcat fans have been very vocal that they're starting to kind of creep and trend back towards the bubble. Any realistic chance that Kansas State could play themselves into the NCAA tournament? I mean, if you want to talk about a team with opportunities, they've got two big ones on their schedule remaining at Kansas and then at home against Iowa State to conclude their season. Yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, 48th in strength of record gives them gives them a, a pretty decent starting point there relative to other bubble teams. They're certainly in a mix there. Um, the metrics are still lagging behind most bubble teams. They're only 7-10 and 10, um, against the upper two quadrants. But as you pointed out, I mean, they go at Cincinnati, at Kansas, Iowa State at home. Um, that's three straight uh, quad one opportunities. Knock off those games, knock off two of those games, three of those games, and, and definitely some intrigue there. Um, they're one of those teams to me that I think is, is sitting outside of the first four out, maybe even outside of the first eight out, um, that I do think has the opportunities and ability, um, to potentially make a push and that there aren't really that many of those teams right now. I feel like the, the, the bubble has shrunk pretty quickly, um, in terms of the teams that are on the outside really have a lot of work to do. Um, but at least Kansas state's schedule gives them the opportunities to do that work. 
They just got to find a way to get the games to overtime. That's the key. <laughs> that seems to be the key for Jerome Tang uh, this year. Get that thing to OT, and you're going to find a way to clutch it up late. Hopefully, Wildcat fans will be able to rejoice. Obviously, we all want more fireworks. And uh, with all the controversy about gaming the system and such, some more Big 12 teams in the mix would surely make a lot of people happy and a lot of people upset. Uh, shifting gears towards the Big East, we talked a little bit earlier in the program about Creighton and Marquette and their potential chances to rise. Andy, I'll start with you. Talk to me about the Blue Jays. Talk to me about Marquette. What's going on with these Big East teams that have ample opportunity to climb potentially to the one line still for Creighton or for Marquette rather, and then for Creighton, the picture's a little bit different. Yeah, I think we touched on Marquette a little bit earlier. I think they've got an outside chance at the one line if they can they can perform well down the stretch. I think Creighton is an interesting one. They're kind of right on that 3-4 border for me right now, uh, and I think I've had them both as the last three and the first four at different times over the last couple of weeks. But for them, they've got two games left. They, they host Marquette, and then they travel to Villanova. So a couple other quad one opportunities for them. They're currently 6-5 and five in quad one, have a couple quad one A wins, uh, don't have a loss outside of quad two and and they're seven and five in true road games. So they get that Villanova game, you know, get to eight and five in true road games. That would be pretty solid with, with wins over uh, Nebraska away from home, which has proven to not be an easy place for teams to win this year. Uh, and they've kind of beaten the, the, that would give them kind of a sweep in large part of the, uh, the big East bubble teams away from home with uh, being able to beat if they were able to beat Villanova there. So, you know, metrics are really solid. And so, you know, I think you look at them, they're in that three, four mix right now. Three feels like maybe the ceiling barring a, a really deep Big East tournament run. But I also think they'd have a hard time falling uh, too much uh, from where they are currently right now either. Uh, so they're one that, uh, you know, you can kind of watch and see if they can play their way into, you know, a little bit higher of a protected seed and, and maybe one that gives them a chance to play a little bit closer to home uh, the further they are up the seed list. Uh, Lucas, I was told to ask you personally this question. I know we're very new friendship here. I've got to ask about your boys. Is Butler officially dead, or is there still a potential pulse to get into the NCAA tournament? Yeah, you know, I, I think dead to me in bracketology means you have to make – you have to win your conference tournament to make the tournament. Um, so if that's the definition of dead, I'll say no. I'll say Butler's on life support. Um, I, I think they're probably 13th or 14th out of the field for me right now. Um, and I think it's highly unlikely that they get in that large bid. Um, if you're going to make a path towards it, there is a, there is an opportunity that's a little odd, um, is that they have, they'd have to beat DePaul and Xavier to close the season, both games in which they're Ken found favored in, and then win their opening round game of the Big East tournament. Um, it, but because of where they are in the Big East standings, they're, more than likely going to get the eight or nine seed in the Big East tournament, which means they're more than likely going to get UConn in the second round if they were to get there. Um, odds are against them even getting to that point, especially with their recent play. It's five losses in the last five games, six in the last seven. Uh, odds are very like unlikely that they win the next three and get to face UConn in that game. But if they do, and then odds are extremely unlikely that they were able to beat UConn in that game anyways. But since those were the matchups, that I think is the path. I think it's certainly an unlikely path and a very uphill one, um, but there is at least some path there that they can still make the tournament without winning the Big East tournament, and that that would be my definition of dead. So I, I think it's it, it's extremely unlikely, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say dead yet. There, there's still 18 teams for me um, that are outside of my field that I have on a consideration list. Um, so so I'm pretty I'm pretty uh, 
I'm not very strict with calling teams dead at this point. So I, I still leave, I still leave a fair amount of opportunities available out there. Um, so Butler is one of those 18 that is on the outside looking in for what's probably only five spots, which of which then might, you already have five teams. In spots. <laughs> say I might be the term support board. Uh, when I were photology, I might be stealing that one out of your lingo. Uh, I'm not sure they're fans. It's one, but the objectivity uh, is admirable, and that's probably the reality of the situation uh, after five consecutive L's down the stretch. Andy, we'll throw things back to you. Last thing about the Big East. Talk to me about this mess around the bubble. Is all this going to sort itself out like we think it is over the course of the last couple games of the Big East in the tournament, or could we really end up jumbled on Selection Sunday with three potential Big East teams still on the bubble trying to get into the field of 68? I'm inclined to think things will sort themselves out uh, I, and sort themselves out might mean there's only two Big East teams in Dayton as opposed to three. But I do think uh, you'll get some separation there. If you look at the teams and their schedules down the stretch, uh, you know, Villanova will start there. They're the only one of the three that doesn't play DePaul or Georgetown. So they've got three games that give them a chance to move the needle uh, at Providence, at Seton Hall, and then Creighton at home. Uh, you look at St. John's, they're the opposite of that. They've only had DePaul and Georgetown left. So not as much room to move the needle. As Lucas said before, they'll probably root for Georgetown in some of these other games because it'll give uh, defeats to other teams that they're competing with on the bubble and will make Villanova look better and, and hence make their sweep over them look better. And, and then you look at Seton Hall and Providence. They've each got a mix of a game against UConn, a game against Villanova, and then one plays DePaul, one plays Georgetown. So uh, you, you've got games where they can't stub their toe and then it's it's really trying to figure out if they can take care of business at home uh, in some of these games. So I tend to think it'll sort itself out, uh, but uh, I, I think there'll still be some intrigue in terms of that heading into the Big East tournament because uh, just because these teams are going to have opportunities, but also will also be playing one another again, uh, and at least some subset of them will probably play one another again as you get to the Big East tournament as well. Headed to the final segment on fielding the 68 brought to you by Rhythm. On the other side, going to be talking some Gonzaga, some Mountain West, and more. Stick with us. Big news, guys. I am thrilled to announce that we have partnered with Autograph, a company founded by the GOAT himself, Tom Brady. The Autograph fandom app gives you access to the best college hoops content, band contests, and exclusive rewards like discounted tickets, all for doing the things that diehard fans like you already do, following your favorite team in the news and listening to podcasts just like this one. When Tom, and yes, I am calling him Tom, we're on a first-name basis these days, co-founded Autograph, he had one mission in mind, change the fan experience for the better. It works like this. You get all of your college hoops content you want in one place. You get articles from your favorite writers, pods from your favorite hosts, contests from your favorite creators, all on the feeds and the sites that you already enjoy. But instead of having to go to all these different places, it all comes to you in one spot, the autograph fandom map. But here's the best part. The more content that you consume, the higher you rank in the app. As you consider the level up in status on the app, you can unlock unique rewards curated exclusively for you. So download the free autograph app in the app store and use the referral code F68, that's F68, or tap in at the link in the description below or in the podcast app of your choosing to start earning points for doing something as normal 
as listening to this very podcast. It really is that simple. Welcome back into Fielding the 68, brought to you by Rhythm, Facts and Childress, Lucas Harkins, and Andy Bottoms. Bringing down some bracketology, talking about the important hitting questions as we are into the month of March in 2024. Uh, Lucas, going to throw to you to start the final segment of the program. Talk to me a little bit about Mark Few at Gonzaga. They start to seem a little bit safer after a nice run of results, but still not definitively in the field of 68. Yeah, I have them a little bit higher um, than Andy does. I have them on my 10 line. Uh, I think more of that has to do with their metrics than it does their, their necessarily team. I think that then necessarily their odds of being selected. I think I have them just above um, that last four in. And once once they're in the field, and that's once I've selected them for the field, at that point it becomes, I think, a little bit more important to note that they're 18th in BPI and 17th in Ken Baum. Um, they have obviously have those tremendous quality metrics on their side that I think will boost their seating um, if they are able to make the field. And obviously adding um, a second quad one win at San Francisco um, earlier this week was a big one to, to get. And if they're able to win at St. Mary's um, this weekend, I think that's one that, that might be that might just do it. I think that I think that's going to solidify them in the field for me for, and probably for the committee. I think if they win at St. Mary's, I think that's the one that just gets them in. Um, whereas a loss in that game, and you might still be sweating a bit going into the West Coast Conference Tournament. Um, but as it stands, I think they're a team that, that that's in the field um, as a result of um, those two wins that they picked up recently at Kentucky, at San Francisco. Um, they're now 7-2 and two in true road games, and obviously they haven't um, faced the true road games that other teams in high majors have played. Um, but that two of their best wins, their two best wins of the season are both on road sites. They played a top 25 non-conference strength of schedule. Um, I think it's a team that's probably going to get into the field. Um, and that's something that I don't think I thought two weeks ago. Um, so so ups to Gonzaga for, for playing really well here down the stretch um, to put itself into a better position than I thought they would be in. Uh, Andy, anything to add on the Zags as somebody that currently has Mark Few's bunch on the bubble? Just like I said, I think the St. Mary's game becomes really important. I would agree with Lucas. I think if they win that one, they're they're in good shape. If they lose it, they that drops them to two and six in quad one, four and seven in the top two quadrants, and just nine and seven in in the top three. You know when you you take out the quad four games, so we'll drop them to one and five in the field. You know versus the field, they'd have one winning. It's the net top sixty. So you could just kind of go on and on like how about how important that game is. So you know that's one to really watch. I think it's a, a huge swing game for them because I agree that it it makes them feel really safe if they win it and probably makes them pretty worried uh, and really needing to, to get the next matchup against them, which would be for the WCC title in the conference tournament to, to feel uh, safe after that. So big, big game in Moraga on uh, Saturday night. Absolutely. And uh, shifting gears, but staying towards the West Coast, Mountain West. Is it going to be a four-bid league? Is it going to be a five-bid league? It's starting to trend like it's going to be a six-bid league. Uh, Lucas, we can start with you once again. Give us the latest skinny on the Mountain West, some teams that are currently in the bubble. Nevada's been playing great basketball as of late. There's a lot of storylines out West. Yeah, you know, I feel really good about it being a five-bid league right now, um, at least five. I just don't see um, any of those other teams dropping out. I think San Diego State's obviously safely in the field. Utah State's safely in the field. Um, Boise State's really run through a recent stretch where they, they've basically avoided their only chances for landmine losses the rest of the season. They did on a four-game win streak and did them all by 20-plus. 
um, their final stretches against good teams. I think that they're going to make the field pretty safely. I think Nevada and Colorado State are probably going to make it pretty safely. Um, right now, the only team that I think is really on the bubble for, from, from the Mountain West is New Mexico, um, which we've talked about um, at, at several points in this, in this show. And I think something to note with New Mexico is not only are they in my field, not only are they in Andy's field, they're also in our consensus field. Um, and in order for a team to fall out of the field, someone, someone has to play their way in. Um, and there aren't that many of those teams that you look at right now as having good odds at doing that. Uh, so I think odds are in the Mountain West's favor of getting six teams, but I think it's definitely one that's going to get five at minimum. Andy, anything to add on the Mountain West? Uh, yeah, I think New Mexico, had they not dropped that game to Air Force, I think we'd be saying even more confidently that it felt like a six-bid league, but yeah. uh, that's not exactly what happened. So, yeah, you just kind of look through. I think San Diego State and Utah State, as Lucas said, are the, the safest two. Boise has the schedule that can really – help them or hurt them the most, hurt them not in terms of dropping out of the field, but they've got New Mexico, Nevada, and at San Diego State left. You, know, you don't want to go 0-3 there, but those are three tough games. You know, Nevada has uh, two home games. You win your home games against Fresno and UNLV, feel pretty good there. Colorado State's the one that has been playing not very well lately. They lost three of four. They've got the two just don't lose these games left of you know Wyoming and at Air Force there. Uh, and then so, and then you got New Mexico that we've talked about before. So, yeah, feeling pretty comfortable with five uh, at this point. New Mexico is probably the swing, uh, the swing school in terms of whether they can win. You know, one of those two road games. I think they go two and one during that stretch. They can feel uh, breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. Uh, and then I'm sure people would, you know, dare anyone say about a seven bid Mountain West. But uh, you've got UNLV lurking a little bit uh, with games left at home against San Diego State and on the road at Nevada. So. Don't think seven bids is likely by any stretch of the imagination, but they're at least hanging around to be part of the conversation at this point. Yeah, Lucas, I'll throw it to you about UNLV. Uh, is this a team that could make a hypothetical run in the Mountain West tournament to potentially boost their resume even more? Yeah, I, I think the run for UNLV is either win the Mountain West tournament <laughs> Um, or miss the or miss the big dance. Like I, I don't really see them as an at-large contender. Ninety um, first in strength of record right now. Um, they're zero and four in quadrant two. Like they have some great wins on their resume, but just they're still five and seven and across the upper two quadrants with three quad four losses. Um, I don't think they're an at-large team. Uh, but that said, they've proven they can beat some of the best teams in Mountain West. They're going to have an advantage in the Mountain West tournament. Um, there's certainly an opportunity they can that they can make a push. Um, and be a team that some other bubble teams um, get worried about as a potential bid stealer. I think they're one of those teams. Um, certainly, I, I think that obviously the American and the A10 are the biggest team, about the biggest leagues to watch for bid stealers. Um, but UNLV is, is a team that's out there and, and has proven that it can beat good teams enough um, to be a potential threat there for sure. Going to shift gears towards some questions from our subscribers out of the chat. Philip asks an interesting one, and either of you guys can hop in on this one. How far off the bubble is Ohio State after their recent hot stretch? Uh, I mean, they're they're still a little bit off for me uh, as you, as you look at that. I, I think uh, it's it's kind of crazy how I mean they've not even are uh, a couple weeks, but you look. They're three and six in quad one. They've got those three quad one A wins, two of which have come in the weeks uh, to go with that Alabama win that really seemed like an anomaly as you looked at things uh, going from there. But they're five and 11 against the top two quadrants uh, with one quad three loss. 
just the, the metrics aren't you know comparative to where they sit for UNLV. Uh, as Lucas said, the metrics aren't a disqualifier for them, but they've got uh, you know they've got some work to do there. And the challenge, to a certain extent, is that with what they have left, there's not as many opportunities to to really move the needle uh, in the way that they have over the last couple of weeks by beating Michigan State uh, and and even Nebraska this week. If you look at them, they've got uh, Michigan at home and then at Rutgers. So the at Rutgers game would fall in quad two, I, I believe, with where Rutgers is at this point. And, and so I think it builds some of that momentum, but I think they're going to need to do a little bit more damage in the Big Ten tournament uh, to be able to really make a compelling case. Nine, 11, nine and 11 in this year's Big Ten doesn't feel like enough uh, to me. I know conference record doesn't matter and all those things, but you just kind of step back and look at it, 19 and 12 uh, with where they are, just doesn't feel like quite enough uh, for me. Um, but if they're able to win those games, I think it sets up for uh, some intrigue heading into the Big Ten tournament. Uh, Lucas, anything to add on the Buckeyes and their current situation on the outside looking in? Yeah, I think that's where we are. I mean, I mentioned it earlier, like they're in the 18 teams that I have on the outside that are under consideration still. Uh, but a sub-250 non-conference schedule, they're 1-8 in true road games. Like I know they're 4-0 at, at neutral sites, but at best they're going to enter a selection Sunday 2-8 and eight in road games. That's if they win at Rutgers, um, which, would, which they'd obviously have to do to even stay in at-large contention. Um, I, I think they're definitely a team that that's put themselves, you know, on the fringe of the bubble talk. Um, I wouldn't say they're a team that's dead, um, but they're a team that, that definitely needs um, to pick up some needs to win out the regular season with the Michigan game and the Rutgers game, and then um, get some bubble help, not only from the teams um, that are on the cut line right now, but also themselves need to help themselves in the big 10 tournament. Another question that. from the chat. Uh, if North Carolina wins out, Lucas, we can start with you once again here. If North Carolina wins out, do they jump to the one line regardless of the ACC tournament results, asks Riley. I wouldn't say regardless because, um, like, you never know what's going to happen with Arizona um, or Tennessee. Like, if Tennessee goes out and wins the SEC um, and the SEC tournament, like, that that cha- like finishes its regular season with its wins and then – um, was to ask, win the SEC tournament. I think they could jump over North Carolina for that spot. Um, but certainly North Carolina is a team that I think is is in better shape for a one seed than I think some give credit. Um, and that comes back to the committee putting them as the first one, the first uh, second seed um, at, at the bracket preview. And they're going to obviously, if they're going to win out this regular season, they'd pick up another road win. Um, and that would be a really good road win. Winning at Duke would get them there. And they'd, always, they'd already have a great collection of road wins to their name. And if they add that one, I think there's certainly one that's not in, not just in the conversation for a one seed, but might be up there with Tennessee um, and Arizona as like a really tight battle for the last one spot. Andy, any additional thoughts to add about Huber Davis and the Tar Heels? Yeah, I think the ACC tournament still matters at that point uh, for them. I don't think they would solidify and lock in a, a, a one seed at that point. But I do think if you kind of set the Tennessee result aside and you just look at them compared to Arizona, I I could definitely see them based on where the committee had them. I could definitely see them leapfrogging Arizona if they went out, which would include that win at Duke. And then you'd still need to, I think, perform reasonably well in the ACC tournament. Now the Tennessee part, you put that back on the table, they went out, Tennessee probably jumps both of them uh, in my view. So it it matters what others around them do, but, uh, but yeah, so it's a, 
it's it's exciting to have that kind of race for that last one seed though heading into the last you know week plus of the of the regular season and the, and the tournament season so um that makes it exciting and so i think they would do it if they were able to win out but i think the acc tournament still would matter quite a bit for them depending upon what tennessee did and and even what arizona might end up doing in the pac-12 tournament So final thing we're going to be doing here on this installment of Field in the 68, I want each of you guys to give me two games to watch this weekend, two marquee matchups that could have big implications, whether it's bubble watch, whether it's one line, some seeding. Lucas, we can start with you. What has your eye going into this weekend slate of college hoops? First things first, we never go to me first. So my top two solutions are usually taken already. Um, so for me, I'll stick on the bubble. <laughs> Um, Villanova Providence is is massive. I mean, it, it's it's a battle between two teams that both myself and and the field in the sixty eight consensus have in the last four in. Like that that is the bubble game of the weekend, and I don't think there's a debate there. Um, the impact of that game is significant on all teams in that area. Um, and secondly, is Wake Forest at Virginia Tech. We've discussed this game several times on this show already, and that's you know Wake Forest needing to pick up um, a road win to prove it can do that. Uh, and I think that that's the, that's the biggest singular team performance is how Wake Forest performs against Wake, uh, against not against themselves, um, against Virginia Tech and Blacksburg. Andy, going to you now, any games that you have your eyes on that Lucas did not mention? And I didn't know that Lucas didn't usually get to go first, so I'm glad I could have that experience for you uh, so you didn't get your games stolen this week. I have a yeah, you guys are back to yeah, you guys are you guys are back to even after you asked him the Butler question. So you guys uh, yeah. you guys are back to where you started, I think, from a friendship standpoint. So you should be good. Uh, yeah, I think you know, some of these games we we talked about already. New Mexico Boise State is a is a really intriguing one for me uh, on Saturday. We talked about what that means for New Mexico, but also Boise is a team that's got some opportunities. I think they've got a, a chance to really climb out of the the mix of the seven eight nine line, which is a, a mess right now. The other one I'll throw out uh, is a Big Ten game, I guess, to stay uh, on brand for myself, if you will, and that's Michigan State at Purdue. Uh, don't think this is a game that anybody's really expecting Michigan State to win in, but they are you know, in a precarious position at this point. Again, I don't think they're in danger of falling out of the field by losing this game. That would be a lot to put on a, a road game at the top overall seed. But after that loss to Ohio State, you know their their loss total is, is just – climbing at this point and they're another team that has really good quality metrics and has lived off of that for a while but the number of quality wins is is a struggle for them so i think at least performing well in this game at purdue is important for them to get a little momentum uh down the stretch and, and certainly if they won it would give them a ton of breathing room uh based on where they are but they lose that one uh and they end up that would drop them all the way down to um, trying to pull the record up here real fast. I think that would be their 13th loss, if I'm remembering correctly. So um, that gets, they'd be, or no, they'd be their 12th. They'd be 17 and 12 uh, heading into a, a home game against Northwestern, who's been uh, banged up but solid uh, for them in the last week. So I think that's a really important game for Michigan State to, to show well in that scenario. Uh, and then we'll throw out Cornell Princeton as the uh, as, as a bonus third game. There it is. Again, I feel like anytime I throw out, uh, non-major league games it's it's just a nod to Rocco not being here uh so throw that one out that one has some pretty big implications as the Ivy three-way tie will sort itself out hopefully uh over the course of the weekend well I've had a blast fellas for 
Lucas Harkins for Andy Bottoms. I'm Facts and Children saying so long on the latest installment of Fielding the 68. Reminder to all subscribers, fans, and people who follow on social media, you can get the full bracket reveal on the social media after the show concludes. God bless everybody. Have a great rest of your day and enjoy the weekend of College Hoops.